0: Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kanapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'm your host, James Fox. Alongside us, welcome back to Jack McMullen. It is so good to talk to you again. Broadcaster for the Indianapolis Indians of the Pittsburgh Pirates organization and editor at Just Baseball Media. You can follow Jack on Twitter at Jack underscore McMullen11. I know you're a White Sox fan, but the fact that you're participating so closely within an organization that has a lot of talent uh in, especially in i guess where you're broadcasting now i, I love the idea of breaking down the modern athlete so i'd love to begin there just your opinion of well first actually let me ask you this how long has it been for you broadcasting just in general and now with the triple a uh, affiliate of the pittsburgh pirates yeah well thank you guys for having me and it, it's nice because i think this is what appearance
2: three now so i'm, I'm recurring guest it's really exciting stuff With you guys at least. So, yeah, I've been, let's see, it was, I I was out on the Cape in terms of baseball. um, I was out in the Cape Cod Baseball League, which is a collegiate summer league, you know, cream of the crop when it comes to college players that are not draft eligible. I was there in 2018. Uh, 2019, between my junior and senior year of college, I was with the Nats short season affiliate in Auburn, New York, the Auburn Double Days um, closest minor league team to Cooperstown, hence double days. Um, 2020, I was supposed to be with the Fort Wayne tin caps, which was the Padres high a, um, but then like that pandemic type thing occurred. So 2020 was no more, uh, 2020 was for real. Part of my, uh, part of my duties with Fort Wayne was taking the COVID test to the local FedEx to be shipped out to the minor league testing facility. And then uh, 2022 started doing uh, Indianapolis Indian stuff.
1: And now year two with them. That's, I mean, uh, a life of a broadcaster. It's fantastic. And you're having a lot of success with Just Baseball as well. Uh, Really enjoy your work there. And uh, the fellows, you know, we have Elijah Evans, who also contributes to Just Baseball Media. And my goodness, is he working hard? And shout out to RM Layton as well. Uh, I want to stick to the topic, Jack, because, you know, going from, you know, where you came from to now in AAA, uh, the progression of the athlete. And also, you know, I saw a post, this is where I wanted to begin, actually, is because I saw a post regarding Tommy John surgery and the uptick of Tommy John surgery. And I I can't help but think about, you know, yeah, the pitch clock, I think, does have something to do with it, but... To me i think it's a larger issue and i don't know how you feel about the ramp up to professional baseball for a lot of these athletes who participate in essentially a full summer's worth of baseball non-stop and yeah. working out independently with trainers and getting their body ready for professional baseball because there really is an expectation now especially for arms to get to a certain point and if you're if you're not eclipsing a certain rpm number especially heading into the draft Outside of high school, you're not getting the necessary look. So I just I'm curious of what you're seeing in the modern game today in AAA specifically, and your thoughts of how athletes are training to become professional ball players, and then ultimately major league ball players.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, I think now as opposed to any of my you know previous years, and I think in AAA you see it like you just have more grown men than other levels, and um, yeah, I, I can tell via forearm size. The forearms in AAA are way bigger than they were in high A, and those were way bigger than they were in low A. Um, and, and, dude, like, it's just X amount of years in a professional weight room. But going to the Tommy John point, yeah, I, I dove into that after McClanahan um, was set to undergo his second when that was officially announced. And um, we're lucky to have Walker Bueller on the Just Baseball show mm-hmm. every Monday. And, you know, this came about because – He was kind of sitting there with nothing to do and he wanted to start podcasting because he underwent his second Tommy John surgery last August. And and thankfully, Walker is on his way back. And it sounds like um, he could be a candidate to start games for the Dodgers before the postseason begins. But, you know, that the McClanahan one kind of got me thinking, especially after DeGrom went down with his second Tommy John. I was like, okay, how apparent is this becoming? And the answers vary. And I hear you on the pitch clock thing it could have a little impact on it i don't think there's much i understand you know recovery time all that um but on a pitch by pitch basis i'm not sure I, I think it stems from this you mentioned you want to see a certain number on the radar gun or a certain number uh in terms of spin rpms revolutions per minute on the rap soto um how do you get that you get that by throwing the crap out of right exactly and how do you throw the crap out of the ball? You put your entire intent and and physical will into each pitch. And the, the guys that I named that have undergone multiple UCL reconstructions um, on, on the show last week were McClanahan, Bueller, DeGrom, um, Drew Rasmussen had two in college and an internal brace done. Lance McCullers had flexor tendon surgery. Dustin May had flexor tendon surgery. Um, and I think there were a couple others, but... Note all those guys are among the hardest throwers in baseball. They're all sitting ninety-five plus, mm-hmm. like and, and McCullers. I mean, he's snapping curveballs off, like left and right. So, I think the era of guys that are sitting eighty-nine to ninety-one that are pacing themselves over two hundred and twenty innings is long gone. And I think now we're seeing the physical repercussions of that. But on the flip side, um, and I, I use the term drive yep. um, because you know drive they, they preach max effort. And while you can point to driveline and say, you guys are the villains. You're causing all these, all these injuries. They're also getting guys to the big leagues that, that would have never made it to the big leagues before because they're figuring out what takes them there. The way you get outs and the way you get whiffs in major league baseball is by getting swings and misses. You get that by throwing as hard as possible and spinning curveballs and sliders as hard as you possibly can. These guys are doing it. And, unfortunately, a torn UCL is the price you got to pay for that.
1: Yeah, I think that's very well described. And I bring it up because I, I think it is important to mention, especially related to the White Sox as well. The White Sox are not afraid of selecting college players or even prep guys who had Tommy John, maybe ticketed for Tommy John. The White Sox themselves said they're not afraid of the surgery. I just think it's very important to note because More and more, we're seeing younger players debut in Major League Baseball, and they are putting themselves – I know I'm focusing on the pitching side, but they're putting themselves through so much stress the body isn't naturally built to take. And I think the way you talked about it is perfect, and I feel the exact same way. Now, I'm not going to completely discount the pitch clock – because it, it, look who knows it's, it's a year of sample Correct. size but right. at the same time i'm in total agreement with you i think it's the stress that they put on their body and i think it's a, it's a fascinating topic that can get into further discussion and i want to take it to the next step um and we could just totally flip gears because we got a lot to get to on this podcast just baseball released their top 100 four yep. white Sox prospects were a part of the top 75 actually so let's begin there a lot of the work goes into the top 100 list. What are some other things that Just Baseball is working on now that we're approaching the end of the season, as well as your opinion on the four White Sox prospects in the top 75?
2: Yeah, well, our editorial guys absolutely crushed the trade deadline. Ryan Figgelstein is our managing editor, and he kind of had our, our writing staff all systems go for the deadline. They did deadline previews, and we had a tracker going, so that was awesome. Um, obviously, multimedia stuff going to be big as we get to the postseason. And in terms of prospect coverage, man, this is this is the time where you can eat. I, I already saw this morning that Kyle Harrison is going to debut for the San Francisco Giants, who's a top 100 guy. Drew Rom, who is a headliner in the return from Baltimore to St. Louis for Jack Flaherty, uh, he's going to debut. Um, I mean, we just saw Nolan Shawnawell get up after 95 minor league plate appearances. The Angels' first-round pick this year is already leading off and playing first base for the Halos as they try and hold on to that you know final wild card spot or i guess the the glimmer of hope that they could get there um but man like i, I think in terms of prospect coverage this is going to be a time to eat in the next 2 3 weeks and then after that it, it's all systems go uh, in the postseason. but yeah man for the top 75 arm Layton, i think does the best top 100 out there um because not only like do i agree with the rankings and and i'm editing these you know write ups and all that but um I mean, this guy goes into more detail than I think any other write-up out there. So even if you disagree with the number attached to a guy, read the write-up and you'll learn something about your favorite team's top prospects. And I, I hope you guys came away with with that when looking at Colson, Schultz, Caro, and Ramos. And um, you know, Brian Ramos, obviously, tons of juice there was dealing with that injury. Ramos is a guy that Arm absolutely loves. Edgar Caro is somebody that we both loved and uh, he's kind of met the level in double-A. He was 19 years old at season start, and he was catching in double-A. Um, like nobody should be doing that, but Carroll was surviving, and people call it underwhelming. A 19-year-old, 20-year-old with a 750 OPS in double-A as a catcher is utterly ridiculous. Uh, Colson Montgomery is awesome, and then I'll, I'll throw it to you guys. How do you not see shades of Chris Sale and Noah Schultz, where he's that tall, lanky lefty, and he's throwing really hard, and he's got that sweeping slider. I just – I watch Schultz, and I'm like, okay. I feel like they kind of saw the th- the same thing when Sale was at Florida Gulf Coast.
3: Well, so, I mean, I think the biggest thing was, like, to me, like, when highly respected people go see a guy, and then he's, like, hiked up a list right away. So, like, Josh Norris of Baseball America saw him three straight times, and he went from unranked at Baseball America, like, right to 44 on their top 100. Yeah. So, you know, it just, like, kind of tells you – I guess like what the industry thinks, cause it's not like that's just him, right? Like he's reaching out to 25 contacts, like about right. this. So then, I mean, you know, like they have, and Kylie McDaniel this week had Colson Montgomery ranked like yeah. number two overall in baseball, which look right. Little strong for me, but I mean, look, if he's too a little, near, but if he's, <laughs> you know, if he's 10, I mean, you know, it's, that's still awesome, you know? So yeah, like they have a a pretty universal top 20 and top 50 prospect in the sport. You guys have Ramos, a lot of places don't, but I mean, I think it's, it's fair for sure. And then Caro. So, so they've done a, a pretty good job, I guess, you know, before we get some of your overall thoughts on like the 23 White Sox and where they go from here, just like general thoughts on the talent, like accumulation, right? Like their, their system got a lot better in July because they yeah. had a fairly strong draft on paper. And then, you know, like nobody ever wants to sell. Right. But if you have to, they, they did a pretty darn good job like adding there too, I think.
2: Yeah. Um, no, I mean, in terms of the baseball decisions, and I know not a lot of white Sox fans want to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyways. I think Rick Khan is good at his job. I, I think Rick Khan is a good scouter. I think they draft very well. Um you see that with you know their draft picks that have made it to the big leagues, and and you see it with the international free agent guys, and you know that that system, while it you know can be perceived as one of the worst in baseball, guys continued to get better. Like the White Sox were arguably the worst system in baseball last year, um, but I mean like people didn't really know about Colson at that point. People didn't really know about Brian Ramos at that point. People didn't know about Colas, and I know Colas has struggled, but Lenin Sosa broke out in the minor leagues in a big way. So I, I think that Rick Hahn and his team do a good job of identifying talent. I also think, and I said this on the show right after the deadline, it's so hard for me to call a team that has failed miserably this year in terms of what their goal was, winners at the trade deadline. But the White Sox won the trade deadline. They they were big winners coming out of that because they, they got they got great prospects for rental assets that were frankly not very good. And I think Giolito is is the perfect example. I think people can be looking at Lance Lynn, who's got this sub two with the Dodgers, and and we're saying, oh my gosh, how can you let that guy go? If Lynn started the last three games with the White Sox, he's not putting this together, man. Like, Let's be honest here. So you're not trading this version of Lance Lynn. You were trading the version of Lance Lynn with an ERA at six and a half. And, And the fact that they got Nastrini there and they and they got Leisure who's already in Charlotte and looks like he can be a big league reliever. I thought they they made out incredibly well at the trade deadline.
3: So like how tough is this going forward? I know you've you know like you're very familiar with the Charlotte Knights and the ballpark that they play in, right? I think yeah. we asked we asked uh you know our previous guest about this because it's just, so like the way the White Sox have operated like it's a lot of veterans and four a types at Charlotte, you know, just because you need guys to bring up so that they're not rushing prospects, et cetera. But I mean, the team at Birmingham is as good as it's been in a while right now. And you got, you know, you got a starting pitcher going every day. That's a prospect. Those guys are going to probably have to pitch in Charlotte next year. How do you like with your experience, right? Like I don't really care that much about ERAs in Charlotte. If like other stuff, Is happening like on a development track, but it's going to be tough, I think, for fans to see like these top pitching prospects that are supposed to be in the big leagues at some point. Like with the numbers that they're probably going to put up in that ballpark in Charlotte. So how how do you think like we should approach that?
2: Yeah, I I think context is so important with Charlotte and with pitchers in Charlotte and with hitters in Charlotte. I think Lenin Sosa is seventeen pumps this year. He like you can't dream on seventeen homers at the big league level for Lenin Sosa. But that place is a bandbox. Um, you know I I think you have to look at it in a similar fashion to how West Coast teams look at their PCL affiliates in the Pacific Coast League. Like Joe Adele hit a ball 514 feet. He's going to hit a ball 470 in the big leagues, but it's not going to go 514. Um, pitching prospects that throw in the PCL always have elevated ERAs. And I think that Colorado is a really good example of that, even though Coors Field is you know, that, that most hitter-friendly ballpark in baseball you look at where their double-A affiliate is and then where their triple-A affiliate is. double is in Hartford, Connecticut. You know, it's it's your Northeast summer. The air's humid. It's it, The ball doesn't really fly there. Then you go to Albuquerque, which is the most hitter-friendly ballpark in all of minor league baseball. Kind of same with Arizona. You go from, you know, Hillsboro and then and then you jump to Amarillo, which is North Texas, and it feels like you're playing in zero gravity there. Um, so I, I think that... You have to take pitcher ERA with a grain of salt. And I think that these guys are professional enough where they know that, you know, if cheap home runs get out, that they're not going to be deterred. I think the Pirates, you you see it really well in, in Pittsburgh because Greensboro, I mean, balls just fly. I was talking to Jared Jones, who's a consensus top 100 prospect now. Last year in Greensboro, he allowed a homer that I think was 89 miles an hour off the bat no ball hit 89 should get out at any ballpark in professional baseball, but this one did. And he was like, yeah, I was, I was pissed in the moment, but you know, I, I just got to realize that that's not going to happen in the big leagues. If I get 89 off the bat, it's being caught. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, these guys need to understand that their confidence can't waver with a, with a ballpark Homer, um, but much easier said than done.
0: All right, Jack. So,
3: like getting into this 2023 team a little bit. I think we, you know, we've waited 16 minutes. Um, are you sure you want to? Yeah, <laughs> just a just to talk about the future kind of. But, uh-huh. you know, so full disclosure, we're recording Sunday for a podcast that comes out on Tuesday. Bob Nightingale's, you know, early morning report from USA today says the Chicago White Sox are conducting a series of internal interviews to determine whether dramatic changes are needed inside the front office or the coaching staff. Has been one of the most disappointing and painful seasons in Chairman Jeremy, Jerry Reinsdorf's tenure. Then he throws in there that Rick Hahn has a year left on his deal and Pedro Grifol has two. What does this mean?
2: I don't know. I know. I mean, it's so hard to kind of palette there. Um, it would suck if Grifol was one and done because um, I think that's a guy that you know is not is not misunderstood. Obviously, like there are, there are things that he could have handled better this year, um, but. That guy just came into a brutal, brutal situation. And listen, if we've learned anything about Jerry Reinsdorf, it's that he is loyal to his guys. And and that has been to a fault with some guys. Right. So um, I don't know, man. It's it's a very weird situation. And uh, if I were a betting man, I'd say that it's the same cast of characters that are at Camelback next February as as they are right now.
1: Yeah, I think it's fair, just based on history and also the, point, the way that baseball works and the way that the White Sox organization is heading. I think it's headed in a positive direction, thanks in large part to Mike Shirley and the front office's ability to draft and identify prospects in trade acquisitions. And that's where I want to go to now, Jack, because I think when we're looking ahead – I can't help but skip 2024 and look at 2025 because I think the plan, if the White Sox want to stay conservative in their budget, not really invest a lot in their payroll, look, they're going to have to fill the rotation out somehow in 2024. But in your opinion, what does it look like within the White Sox organization a- across their farm system, their affiliates, say in a year or two, is there enough to field a big league competitive ball club?
2: You're going to be so embarrassed when they sign Shohei Otani yeah, this offseason. Yeah, how about it?
1: Um, yeah, I think there's enough. Uh,
2: I, I think if you move all of these offensive prospects and, and pitching prospects to Charlotte next year and you slowly but surely work them into the big league, um, you know, work them into the big league machine, next year, 2025, everybody's up. So I'm talking Colson, Ramos, I'm talking, I mean, hopefully Schultz is just a a meteor and he's, you know, or a rocket ship and he just climbs so quickly. Um, the should be up at that point. Kai Bush should be up at that point. Um, I, I don't know, man, I, it's going to be a young team. I think it's probably a similar conversation to, um, where Pittsburgh is this year where Pittsburgh, yes, they're rookie laden. Does that mean they're good right now? No, it doesn't. Next year. Does it mean they'll be good? Uh, higher likelihood. I think same thing with Cincinnati, right? Cincinnati is the youngest and most exciting team in all of baseball, does that mean that they're a postseason team? No, probably not. Like, the Cubs look better than the Reds do right now, although Ellie de la Cruz is is a freak show. So, yeah, I like, I don't know. I, I just think you got to be patient. 2025 is going to be the first year where you kind of see the full scope, but 26, I, I think, is that year where everybody has some trials and tribulations under their belt at the big league level, and they can really hit the ground running. And you brought up something
1: related to Pedro Griffol coming into a bad situation. I Yeah. Look, the clubhouse was built to win at the time that Tony Larusso was hired. Tony LaRusso came in and the way he is is the way he is as a manager. Now we're not in the clubhouse, but we could tell based on the clubhouse culture or the, the effort that was in the reports and all of that wasn't really a well-policed ball club. And then you carry that over across a couple of years. Here's Pedro Gafoul trying to implement a new culture, trying to convince these guys to do what they have to do to play winning baseball. Now this is a rookie manager with assembled staff members, you know, from his camp, but then also the White Sox wanted to make some guys too. Now I think the coaching staff itself have a lot of credibility and in triple a double a in single a it's starting to get better uh in terms of development so i i'm wondering what the future is going to look like if i think it would be a mistake to dismiss pedro Grifo after one year even though some of the things that he says is suspect i want to see him have a chance to manage a ball club what you know, a brand new culture is what i'm trying to say now moving forward the thought of having a brand new culture does have to do with some of the remaining pieces in the clubhouse. Now I don't mean to throw all of this at you, Jack, because nobody can see the future, but I wonder yeah. what the trend is going to be within the white Sox front office. Are they going to continue to deal players? Are they willing to move on from Tim Anderson? Is Dylan sees getting traded? What about Aaron bummer? Yeah, I think, um, I, th- I think bummer's fine. Like bummer can stay, you know, it's,
2: it's such a minute part. He's a lefty and he's a setup guy. And, and I think Santos looks like the closer moving forward. Uh, I think you got to get as close to a blank slate as you possibly can for next year. And I think that probably looks like moving Dylan Cease in the off season, uh, maybe scanning for value on Michael Kopech too. Um, and, and if they're adamant on keeping one of those guys, then go ahead and do it. I would probably keep Kopech because Cease is going to get you a King's ransom. And I would think that Cease is one of the hottest topics in baseball when it comes to off-season trade targets. Um, so I think as close as you can get to starting from scratch as you possibly can. Okay. Now, Tim Anderson is, is fascinating because this guy in the span of what, four months has gone from every white Sox fans favorite player to are we sure they want to pick up his club option and that's just crazy and i'm still a big ta guy i think that guy has been going through some stuff right now and and that's becoming more and more clear um i read the i read the ta yasmani grandal thing and if everything is as true as it was you know written or tweeted um, I think I'm on TA's side there because he was trying to show leadership qualities. My thing is, you know, how big is this rift? How many how many players does this rift involve? Um, if it's if it's a bunch and it's a lost cause, I have no idea how you go about it. But they're in, I think, as as brutal a spot as as any team in baseball right now. Looking at 2024, the other thing is like this team has just stunk on the field this year. And, and I I grabbed some numbers this morning because I was just fascinated to find it. And, and these were the ones that jumped out. Highest chase rate as a team in all of baseball. Second lowest cumulative war of any offense in baseball, only ahead of Colorado. They're 25th out of 30 in cumulative war from the pitching staff. If you take out Luis Robert, the roster for the White Sox has a negative 1.6 F war in terms of offensive players. You factor in Jake Berger when he was with the White Sox, everybody aside from Luis Robert on the hitting side has combined for a 0.2 war. This team's just been bad. And if there's a rift within the clubhouse with a bad team, you're in a really bad situation.
3: Yeah. And all that that you just mentioned is what with a six and a half war center fielder that's going to get MVP votes. It's, exactly. pretty, it's, you know, like it's, it's crazy. So just like the rest of the season then, I mean, obviously look like at this point, like I'm just kind of checking in. Like I said today, like Lenin Sosa is not playing, which doesn't really make any sense to me. And he might be just a utility guy, but let's find out. I think at yeah. this point, um, just as far like, what do you think? And look, nobody, everybody kind of bemoans like the tanking thing. Right. But I think like at this point, I think it behooves them to, maybe be as bad as possible and they might be so i just i think those top three lottery odds are a little bit important at this point what are your thoughts on that
2: yeah i think so too i'm a sicko so i'll tune in to honeywell and Tuki Toussaint, um and if patino or davy garcia get a shot I, i'm gonna do that because i for some reason romanticized the 2019 top 100 and all four yeah you of those and guys were there
3: you and Ken Williams. Yes. Yes,
2: exactly. I'm a huge fan. Travis Swaggerty, too. Swaggerty's a great dude, and, and he's going to be a great addition uh, to the White Sox. I was sad to see him leave the Pirates organization. But in terms of like what's actually on the big league roster right now, uh, I'm watching Colas. I'm watching Vaughn, uh, Lenin Sosa. I guess Carlos Perez, too. Um, I'd be curious to see if they can work in Corey Lee or Adam Hackenberg to the fold at all. And Hackenberg is a guy that like really interests me. I know he's not performing too, too well in Charlotte right now, but I think the White Sox are in a see what you got phase right now. And and let's see what you got in Adam Hackenberg.
3: You know, I think something that's been a little bit polarizing. And I know you were, I don't know if you and Aram were sitting next to each other when you guys were doing the trade deadline show, but you were obviously speaking to each other how was it like being near him when the Jake Berger Jake Eater trade happened? And then I guess like your initial thoughts on it and just like the overall reaction to it. I feel like there was, you know, there were a lot of people that just like didn't really understand what the White Sox were doing and why. And I kind of liked it right away.
2: Yeah. So he hated it. I liked it. um, And now I think we're both regressing a little bit more towards the middle. I think Jake Berger, like, Okay, Berger is a one-year breakout. He's on a big-time power surge. Is this Luke Voigt 2.0 is the question that Marlins fans were asking, especially when they were hugging on to Jake Eater through Tommy John recovery. And the answer is no. Like, he's not Luke Voigt 2.0, and I think he's proved to be more than that. And, you know, you guys, I have watched Jake Berger enough at third base to know that he can absolutely get by at third base. Um, Berger also had a ton of control. You think about what happened with the Yankees and Cubs last year, the Yankees acquired Scott Efros, who was a breakout reliever for Hayden Wesneski, who was a borderline top 100 prospect in baseball coming into the year. So that's the cost of a guy with control. Berger doesn't hit arbitration for two more years. Eater was the cost in a one for one type deal. So Not only did I think it was a fair deal, I liked it for the White Sox. I didn't think that it was a slam dunk home run win right away, but um, man, you get a a really talented left-handed pitching prospect and somebody that, you know, some outlets were considering a border borderline top 100 guy. So the fact that you can get that for a breakout is awesome. Now was Berger the most likable player this year for the White Sox? Yes, he was. Does it stink to see a likable player go? Yes, it does. But Jake Berger, <laughs> judging off media availability in Miami, seems a lot happier, and I'm happy for him. And eater man, the fact that you were able to to grab a guy that looks like a future piece in your rotation for somebody you weren't banking on anything for preseason was was massive.
3: So to me, like, just it seems like the White Sox just decided that they couldn't have Jake Berger and Aloy Jimenez, and they chose Aloy. Or look, maybe you know, maybe Jake Eater was offered up for burger and they didn't get their price for a lawyer, whatever. Right. But yeah. like, I've talked to people here who, you know, just fans, obviously that are informed fans who, who would have rather traded Andrew Vaughn and just put burger at first. So, Oof. you know, exactly. I am with you, but do you think that's like, is that fair? Like you think they just kind of chose a lawyer over burger? I'm, I'm not sure
2: what the situation would be. I guess they're looking at DH for the foreseeable future. Um, (laughs) like Lloyd's just got a DH. I He's so good. He's so much fun when he's healthy, but he's made of glass. And I would prefer the guy that's going to give me 130 games a year, as opposed to the one that is hopefully going to give you 90 with 30 homers. Um, it's, it's such a hard thing to pick because it is so apples and oranges with those Mm guys. And, And it's crazy that we're calling Berger reliable when this guy, you know, went to hell and back with the Achilles stuff. Um, so I, I commend Berger for being reliable when the beginning of his career said anything, but yeah, I think, Maybe it has something to do
1: with the depth in the farm system. They feel like they can replace that spot on the infield better than uh, replacing what Aloy could potentially bring with the bad and the fact yet, yes, he, he can sometimes play in the corner outfield spot, but I'm with you. I think it is apples to oranges in that situation. And I wonder, I seriously wonder if Aloy was ever on the table. Um, Andrew Vaughn's having a bad season. Not, uh, we were really looking forward to his progression, his development in the major leagues. I wanted to ask you about Vaughn, about Garrett Crochet, and about Michael Kopech. So if we have yeah. the time, I want to go through these because I'm trying to figure out what the issue is with Andrew Vaughn. Obviously, he's not getting on base enough and not showing slug, but what is it about his swing and plate approach that's resulting in such failure this year?
2: I have no idea, to be honest. And and that's a guy that is much like um, Spencer Torkelson, in in my view, and, you know, Not shocking that those two were considered two of the better college hitters in in recent memory uh, when they were coming out of Vaughn, Berkeley and and Torkelson, Arizona State. But my thing is, it's so ridiculously simple for these guys. The swing is so simple. I'm like, what can go wrong? Sometimes guys have a timing problem. Sometimes guys have, you know, a a twitch problem, whether it's something in their load or, or something directly after that. With Vaughn, there's nothing to get off balance or off timing, so I, I've got no idea what what's going on with him. I mean, he's not seeing changeups, He's hitting two oh eight against breaking balls, but you know, he's punishing fastballs. It, it's it's such a mystery to me, and it's such a weird one because I I don't. You asked me in the off season. I'm like, yeah, Vaughn's the first baseman of the future for sure. But you look at three years and he's got a career 730 OPS. That's not first baseman of the future at all. So um, I don't know. Like, I guess we need to see better numbers. I have no reasoning for why I think he's performing as poorly as he is.
1: Yeah, I think it's fair uh, to wonder and to dream still on Andrew Vaughn, because I think there is plenty of life left in his game. So I think maybe 2024 will be a really good indicator and, uh, and if it's not, we'll say 2025. Well, sure. Until he's out, uh, you know, completely. Yeah. Uh, but it, I think it is fair to, to give him another year to acclimate to a, a fresh start, a different clubhouse and everything.
3: 2025, that's that's when Tim Elko takes over. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There, hey, Good point. Hey, yeah. Shout
1: out Tim Elko. Yeah. He does not stop hitting. <laughs> uh, Garrett My. Crochet. Is this a starter? Is it realistic for him to transition now uh, at this point of his career, considering all that's happened?
2: I think that ship has sailed. I think that this guy should be a closer. Um, if he can, if he can recapture that one hundred one, one hundred two, um, I think this guy should be your closer, and he should be a massive left-handed closer. And this guy can quickly become one of the better closers in all of baseball. I, the fast tracking hurt, man, yeah. and I, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody knew in real time how much COVID was going to screw things up, like there were so many guys that were just derailed by COVID. Mackenzie Gore is one of the better young pitchers in baseball, I think. And the numbers have been volatile so far in his first really true, true season in the big leagues, first true full season in the big leagues. But Gore, like that guy was so screwed up by COVID. And and he was at the alt side. He was waiting for that call. Ryan Weathers got the call and Weathers is a guy that is kind of bounced in between. Um, but he went from low A to the big leagues. And you know Crochet, like college to the big leagues in the same year, when there was zero minor league appearances sprinkled in there, I Yeah, it's just a really hard thing to palette.
1: Yeah, I always reference the timeline of Crochet. It, it's just... It's an anomaly and it's unfortunate because there's so much talent there and look, he still can have a quality big league career. I was really looking forward to the development of crochet as a starter, but we, yeah, I'm with you. It's hard to imagine that this could be a success uh, moving forward. And when I think about Michael Kopech, I'm just wondering, I mean, you got to have more than just a fastball, and even the fastball has been hit really hard. And When he gets into trouble, it seems like Kopech doesn't have a pitch to go to to get a strike. The slider, he's throwing this changeup more, but not enough. The fastball, like I said, isn't blowing anybody away, and he's missing location. What's your opinion on Michael Kopech's career? Because it seemed to me when the White Sox acquired him, he had ace potential. But now we're starting to see a guy who really labors in every start.
2: Yeah, I've got no idea what what happened with Kopech because Kopech was a physical freak. And he was you know, like Michael Kopech shirtless was a Google search when he was traded for, to the White Sox because he was like that minor leaguer that, you know, was like carved out of granite. And it was amazing, you know, to see his physique. And I mean, that was a huge guy that threw a ball 105 miles an hour when he was a Red Sox farmhand. You ask where that went and like where that physical specimen went, and and I've got no idea. Obviously, he was dealing with a bunch of stuff during 2020 and went through a divorce as well. But, I mean, this guy came out of that, and in 21 was awesome in that swingman role. Last year, starting games, he was solid. Like, people forget he was a mid-threes last year. The problem with this year is the home runs and the walks, and I think that those kind of work hand in hand. The walks, you're missing the strike zone. The home runs, when you're within the strike zone, it's center cut. So you've got the diminished fastball. You've got the subdued breaking stuff. And when you're not finding the corners, when you're not finding the outer thirds of the zone and you're leaving things middle-middle, it's going to be bombs away. And so far this year, it's been bombs away against Kopech. Confidence has probably taken a nosedive. And he's nibbling, which in turn leads the American League in walks.
3: So what what are you looking forward to? I guess personally, the the rest of the year. Who do you uh, have coming through Indianapolis to close out this thing?
2: Man, I'm hoping Livy Dunn's boyfriend. Um, that would be pretty cool if Paul Skeens made his way. Um, I have no idea if he will, though. Uh, we've got Pete Crow Armstrong in Iowa coming this next week, which is going to be really cool. Jared Jones is a guy that I, I've kind of fallen in love with watching him pitch. He's six foot, probably 180 pounds, dripping wet, and He was a two way recruit to Texas. Pirates signed him in the second round in 20. But when he was that two way recruit, it was as a power hitting corner outfielder at six foot 180. And he throws 99 and he rips off 95 mile an hour cutters. And I asked him, I was like, dude, where did this come from? Like you play baseball like you're 6'6, 250, but you're six foot 180. And I loved how pure his answer was. And he was like, dude, I've been asking that question my entire life. I have no idea. I guess I'm a really good rotational athlete. I'm not sure. So somebody like that, that just has abilities that transcend their frame. I, I'm fascinated by. Look, um, man, I'm looking forward to the postseason too. At the, at the big league level, it's going to be really cool. And unfortunately, the White Sox won't be there. But um, I think Atlanta's a wagon. I, I'm curious to see who can take down Atlanta, if anybody.
3: Well, but I feel like maybe, you know, maybe the vision of the the pirates getting there, like people might've laughed about even at the beginning of this season. But I, but I think like some of their plan here has come into focus a little bit and look like you let off this show with us, like talking about pitching and there's lots of teams who won't take pitching in the top five. Right. And we had all these discussions leading up to the draft. But then I think the bottom line was like, if you're the Pittsburgh pirates, how else can you acquire a Paul Skeens? And it just seems like, that's the decision they made. And if this guy is as good as like a lot of people think he is, like in the division they play in, like I I think they have a chance.
2: I, I loved that pick. I I at the beginning I was like, why didn't you go Cruiser Langford? And then when they as it kind of settled with me, I was like, This makes a ton of sense because you can take a need-based guy if you were taking one of those three college guys. Now, if they took Max Clark, I'd be like, What are you what are we doing here? But um, the reality is with cruz they signed reynolds long term the reality is with langford henry davis looks like a a right fielder moving forward and andy rodriguez is going to be the catcher so what were you almost lacking or what did you not have on the big league roster and, and i think the answer is a true ace and yeah i know mitch keller was an all-star this year keller was their opening day starter this year he'll be the opening day starter again next year but i i mean Skeens has so much more ability than keller does um and, and keller is good but Skeens can be a cy young winner keller i don't think can so i i think it's really cool how they're going about it and i think the pirates are um based on what i've read the consensus number two farm system in baseball so i've been really lucky to kind of see that thing you know transform into what it is and and see those guys in in finishing school that is triple a and get to the big leagues
1: Man, Mitch Keller has had a massive one year leap from last year to this year. It was really fun to see. Last one, but even there, uh, like a, a weird dip the last couple of starts. Yep, like yep.
2: he had a good start yesterday. He punched out 12 on Saturday. But I mean, before that, he was sporting like a six ERA in his last five, six starts. So it, it's so touch and feel with him mm-hmm. versus Skeens. Like 99 is going to be there every day unless something is physically wrong.
1: Yeah, coming out of the All-Star break, Keller did have stretches um, of struggling. But uh, last one for you, Jack, last one. You're in AAA, broadcasting AAA games. What's the automated strike zone like? How has that experiment gone? Have the players responded well to it? What's the pace like?
2: Yeah, so uh, I don't like the full ABS system that we get Tuesday through Thursday, um, which is umpire wears an earpiece, and within half a second, he's relayed, um, whether it's a ball or a strike um i haven't asked an umpire but i assume it's a siri type voice that says ball or strike um i don't like that because i think strike zones are supposed to be malleable and i think that a mark burley who's my favorite player of all time in any sport would not be able to survive with the abs because burley's thing like against righties he was throwing that you know two seamer to the lower outside corner against right-handed bats and When he was there, twenty straight fastballs in a row, you know he would start to get that call on the black, and the zone started to adjust to Burley, like where he was throwing. Um, That doesn't happen with the ABS system. So I I think that, you know, pitchers' pitches are non-existent with that full ABS system. I really like the challenge system. Each team gets three challenges at the beginning of the ball game. Um, You know, it's. If you watch tennis, it's almost identical to the challenge system in tennis where, you know, the hitter or the catcher or the pitcher will tap the top of their helmet or hat. And you look up to the video board and you see the flight of the ball and then you see where it lands and it shows, you know, proximity to the strike zone, whether it's in or just outside. Um, so it, it happens so quickly. It's a, you know, five to 10 second process. And there's this tiny build of anticipation um i don't think the full abs system should ever be implemented um i think the challenge system is awesome because you still have to rely on the home plate umpire having a good game because you can't challenge every pitch you only have three and if you lose it then you lose that challenge um so yeah moving forward if if i had to you know almost power rank like challenge system full abs versus nothing what we're working with in major league baseball right now I go challenge system once, current state of Major League Baseball uh, two, and then three, I would put the
1: full ABS system. Great stuff, Jack. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Of course. Thank you, guys. That's Jack McMullen. He's doing awesome work. And be sure to follow Just Baseball Media because you know they're the goods over there. So for Jack McMullen and James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Future Sox podcast. We release them every week. We'll talk to you all next time.